The following program is brought to you by Podcast One Sportsnet. Don't forget to download our new Podcast One app. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the AP Top 25 College Football Podcast. I'm Ralph Russo, the college football writer with the Associated Press. Today, my guest is veteran sports writer John Walters. He has written for NBC Sports and Sports Illustrated and Newsweek. These days, he contributes a weekly column to The Athletic called The Bubble Screen, taking a look at college football through the lens of media and television coverage. You can also find him at his blog, MediumHappy.com. We'll talk to John about what he's seeing on Saturdays, run down his favorite announcers, critique game day a little bit. Plus, John is a Notre Dame alum, so we'll discuss the Irish and their playoff hopes and talk about what he thinks of the playoff in general. Thanks again for listening to the AP Top 25 College Football Podcast. You can now find us on Podcast One. We are happy to be working with those fine folks. The podcast has taken off since we aligned with that platform. You can still find us on Apple Podcasts. Please subscribe, and if so inclined, give us a good review. And as usual, you can go to collegefootball.ap.org, where you can read all of AP's college football coverage. And away we go. Joining me this week is John Walters. I hate to call you a media critic, John. (laughs) His blog is Medium Happy, which is a great little blog. Uh, which has a lot of interesting anecdotes and things like that and perspective from John. But I don't know if if media critic is the right term, but you definitely sort of look at the sport, college football, through through the television screen and sort of, you know, guide us through what you see every weekend. Uh, yeah, I would I would just say sort of uh, one of many people, thousands of people, if not millions, who watch college football on Saturdays and has an opinion uh, about everything they see. And uh, I just put it down on you know, a keyboard and people read it. But it's not <laughs> anything that most of your listeners aren't doing with their friends every Saturday as well. Well, that's actually a good perspective because I think that's what, what one of my first questions I wanted to ask you is – is that where you're coming from? Like, what perspective are you trying to give that column? Because, again, it's not a typical critique, even though I'll probably ask you to give a critique of some things later on. But what are you trying to convey with the column as you, again, sit on the, tel- sit on the couch for 14 hours on Saturday <laughs> and consume all that college football? You know what? I, I'm channeling, honestly, um, I'm channeling my college years when my friends and I would sit in a dorm room and watch a game and what became more fun in a, in a sort of mystery science theater 3000 way was what people had to say about what we were listening to. The, the talking back to whatever you heard the announcer say, besides watching the game and obviously enjoying that. Um, and then, the, the, you know, I'll throw in, I don't know if you remember this, but about, I don't know, 12, 13 years ago, there, Deadspin started a thing called the Hugh Johnson Project. And if you remember that, anybody listening, it was it predated Twitter, and it was basically Twitter for college football before Twitter existed. Um, and so now that we, you know, people opining on whatever they saw on different games because it's it's impossible to watch all the games at once and catch everything. So that's what it was doing. But it was sort of funny, uh, occasionally, obviously smart alecky. And so that's what I try to do with the column is is it's impossible for me, one person, to, to watch everything, but I'm trying to see as much 
of the things that make me either say, oh, wow, or that makes me infuriated or that makes me giggle and put it all down in one column. That's an that's an uh, an interesting point you just made about, and I wasn't I'm not familiar with with the Deadspin um, U Johnson project. Um, mm-hmm. I, I kind of came late to the Deadspin world, but I, I can't imagine watching games on a Saturday without Twitter. Twitter is a great addition to a <laughs> well, it's a great addition. It also could be an awful addition in some ways, but it, it, in many ways, Twitter is a great addition to viewing sports because it, mm-hmm. it, it gives you a, a window to things that you're not necessarily watching and, oh, I need to jump to here and jump to there. And nothing is better, uh, more suited to that than college football on a Saturday when there really is too much to keep. I mean, I, I watch three screens. I have three screens mm-hmm. going. When I'm not at a game, I have three screens going. I don't know what you do. So I, I'm wondering what your relationship is like with Twitter on a Saturday as far as contributions to it. Are you using it as a window to like find things that you um, could write about? Are you trying to get a sense of like I'm finding this particular thing annoying? Are other people doing or I'm finding this good? What are, what are other people's reactions? How do you use Twitter as a tool on Saturdays? Twitter is, is the ultimate tool for me on Saturday in two different ways. First of all, the way I was talking about like watching the game with my friends in a dorm room, that's what we're doing now on Twitter. We are choosing who our friends are going to be to be in the dorm room with us. And, and we're, we're, you know, we're commenting back and forth. You and I go back and forth on a Saturday. Uh, I will go back and forth with other people. Pete Sampson. I'm always, you know, please, Chris Falica, you know, also known as Bear on game day, will often tweet me back during the show because <laughs> we're like conversing. So I always, that's part of it. The other part of it is anybody who just wants to go and look at my timeline on a Saturday, you'll notice that most of, or half of it is in my column two days later. It's literally how I take notes. For me, it's easier to just tweet it and then run down my timeline after Saturday than to try to write down notes all, all day long and get it that way. And it's, it's quick. Uh, it's efficient and it's all safe for me right there. So it's in, an indispensable tool for me for doing the column. Okay, so let me uh, ask you about you mentioned Chris Felica and game day, and I want to get your opinions on game day because I, I feel sure. like listen, game day is still maybe the best thing on ESPN. I mean, I'm I'm biased. You know, you can say the thirty for thirties. Maybe I'm biased because I'm a college football guy, but I still think that that's maybe the thing that ESPN does best is that three hour show. I always mm-hmm. liked. I always thought Fowler was a terrific broadcaster, and they the fact that they were able to land, you know, to go right from Fowler to Reese, I thought was a home run because he's so good. Even if it's in a different way, I'm wondering what your view of game day is these days as it has evolved. Uh, you know, what's the what's maybe what are the things that you you would wish it would get better, or things that it's still hitting a home run on. Uh, I'm, you know, as as a as a sports writer slash media critic, I'm, I'm supposed to be cynical or caustic about this, but I'm just like you. I love Game Day. Uh, I think that and Scott Van Pelt's show are the two best things ESPN does. Um, the difference being that ES is that Game Day is something that was invented organically at ESPN um, that they've never improved upon, and and what I love about it is they haven't tried to change it too much. In in the 25 years it's been running, they have not altered the formula that much, and I think that's fantastic. Uh, and like you, 
I love Reese Davis. I always thought Chris Fowler was fantastic. I think they've actually kind of improved upon it um, because I think Reese is a little, uh, a little more affable and, and a little more welcome to letting everybody else shine a little bit. Uh, they're both fantastic. I think I, I would put Reese as a slight improvement, and I, I love them both. Um, I think the main thing I would, if, if Lee Fitting ever called me and said, what should we be doing differently? And he's the executive producer. Uh, there are roughly 10,000 college football players playing FBS. And I think they should be spending more time on them than on uh, kids who have cancer, to be completely blunt. I, I, I understand that they're looking at it from a, well, how do we get the husband's wives to tune in or, uh, on a Saturday morning or their wives to let them keep watching it? Let's put in a heartstring story about somebody with a disease or somebody. It's, it just happens too often. And I think it's actually, to, to my opinion, slightly exploiting it. Um, whereas a couple of weeks ago, they did like a tremendous story on the Florida State football player who lost his home in the hurricane. And then they did another great story on um, the, Florida, the Georgia kicker. Uh, those are stories I think they should do more of. There's so many great college football players or so many guys with wonderful stories, and I think they should do more of that. You know, that's that's an interesting point, and I do feel like, you know, I feel like sometimes, here's my one critique. I, I like that critique, and I, I, I know it is. It's hard to sort of say that, right, because you see the Tyler Trent story um, from Purdue, and that becomes a viral thing. And, and that's a great story. It's a one, it it's a, a year. It's a wonderful story. But I do sense what you're talking about is like this this sort of need to sort of fill that slot in the show. Like we Correct. have our we have our hearts. We have a Rinaldi story with the with the slow piano. Right. Um, right. Okay. Th- and, and let me interject really yeah, quickly. Sure. When Rinaldi interviews coaches, he's fantastic mm-hmm. with Meyer and also with Scott Frost this season. He did terrific interviews. Um, it's not that he's not, you know, good. He's good at everything he does. I just would love to see him doing less of the, the melon, you know, melodrama and more of, of what, you know, for me, at least I think is, is pertinent. Right. And there's a lot, cause, cause as you said, there's an unlimited amount of stories, uh, in this sport. The, the one thing that I found over the years where I felt like, and this is true of ESPN in general. Uh, and really any of the cable networks, because that's sort of the, the business model. I felt like at mm-hmm. a certain point, game day became a, a little about game day. Um, Absolutely. The counting of the head, uh, you know, the, the, the headgear stats, right? Like, mm-hmm. like that's a great thing. It, it's, it really, it still never fails to sort of at least amuse when Corso does that deal. But the fact that, they, again, they sort of push the here's how many he's had and 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 this is how many times he's picked Oklahoma. So that's an example of where I do feel like there was a little bit of game day to a certain degree. It's become such a great deal that it tends to pat itself on the back a lot. A lot. And and also, if you ever go, uh, fans know this, who go to the game day set in perp- on, on, uh, on site, it's a walking billboard. You know, you've got the Home Depot stuff and you've got the, I think it's a Pizza Hut stuff and, and, and then they do certain segments now just because they're already sponsored. So even when they don't have enough material for you have one job. Yeah, you, you hate that, don't you? Like Geico. You hate that. So they that, do it anyway. You hate that segment, don't you? Well, I, I love it if it was actually they had material for it. And once again, and this is, this is a larger issue, but 
as soon as you let money dictate your decisions in art, you're screwed. And so call game day what kind of art you wanted, but they're doing it because they have to fill the slot. Whereas if they did it with, hey, we actually had three great, you know, bloopers this week, let's put it in, then it would be organic, then it would be good. Is there an announcing team that you particularly, and again, I don't know, it, it, sometimes it's hard to consume the announcing teams because you bounce around right. so much and you have multiple screens these days. So, <laughs> I'm, I'm, so I'm wondering if there's an announcing team or, or an analyst who, who jumps out at you these days as you know, more than just another voice. There's a few, and it's funny because you and I go through the same problem on Saturdays. We're watching so many games. I almost wish with all the score graphics that there would just be a quick graphic once in a while to t- remind me who I'm listening to. <laughs> um, but for anyone, my tip for you and everybody is I always down, I take the awful announcing announcer uh, uh, story that they put out usually on Wednesdays, which lists all the announcers for that Saturday, and I keep it handy. Um, but to answer your question, I absolutely love Brock Heward as an analyst. I think he's phenomenal. I think he uh, studies as hard as anybody, and it shows without him boasting about it. Um, uh, I love Jason Benetti, um, play-by-play guy, younger guy in ESPN. Uh, he works with Kelly Stouffer. Uh Those are two of my favorites. I, I've, I've, I've come all the way around, Ralph. I actually now love listening to Tim Brando and Spencer Tillman, and I think part of the reason I love listening to Tim Brando now is because he doesn't sound like everybody at ESPN. Like there's a Dave Pash voice at ESPN that like four different people have. Mm. Um, yeah. They all sound like Dave Pash, yeah. and it's sort of like just cookie cutter. And there's nothing bad. It's just right down the middle. When you listen to Tim Brando, you know you're listening to Tim Brando. Um, and actually, I think he again he's old enough now, and he's in that I don't give a bleep portion of his career, which is always you know as we know with Brent Musburger. That became very entertaining. What do you? Um, what so do you? Those are st- some of my favorites. What do you think of Gus? Uh, Gus Johnson. Uh, his, I, I, think, I like I Joel Clatt. I, yeah, I like Joel Clatt personally. I think he does a good job. Uh, but what do, do you too. think? What do you think of Gus? I do too. I like Gus. I mean, he's, you know, when when it's a big play, Gus is fantastic. If you were if you were listening to the Texas West Virginia game, that the first long pass to Sills, and he just he went delivers, <laughs> and it was great. Um, he he seems more suited to hoops, but he's he's fine. I'm like I'm with you, Joel Klatt. Uh, I love him because he's candid. Um, I also love Nestler and Danielson. I you know a lot of people they they seem on my timeline to be the guys that people love to not like. Yeah, especially um, Danielson. I'm, maybe I'm just older. I love him. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think Danielson but, for for whatever reason. I I think that there are uh, SEC folks who are, you know, I think it, it, it makes sense if you're an SEC fan, you tend to be protective of your team. He's a Purdue guy, right. And, and just whatever he says, he's you're going to think that he's talking more favorably about the other team. And I think that <laughs> outside of SEC fans, because everybody comes to that game, even if you're not an SEC fan, he always will sound like, even if it's not fair, he will always sound like he's honking the SEC. Yeah, I guess you're right. But I, I just, uh, again, uh, I, I just sort of, I love it when they don't like there's there's a I understand where some of the ESPN folks come down because there's so many announcing announcing teams on ESPN um and there's I I sometimes feel that there is a caution a circumspection in the way they like just even lend opinions or talk 
Um, I love listening to a Gary Danielson and Brad Nessler who aren't pitching the, you know, ESPN app every 10 seconds or something. Mm-hmm. They're just, again, they're just there for the game. And, it, and it, it shines through in the broadcast. And I think when it's not about your company, but it's about the game, it, it just sounds better to the home viewer. You know, Keith Jackson passed last year, and Keith Jackson hasn't mm-hmm. done a college football game in a while. And, and as much as Brent was kind of fun, and ESPN mm-hmm. always sort of pushed this, and I know this because they literally pushed this story on me at times, which is, hey, he's <laughs> the new voice of college football. He's the new voice of college football. I think Brent was terrific in many, many ways. I never quite accepted that, <laughs> and and I never wrote that. I'm wondering mm-hmm. if is there anybody out there, and it would be Fowler would be in the position to be this. Is is there anybody who you could see becoming sort of the voice of college football? I I thought it was going to become Joe Tessitore, and of course, unfortunately, he got too good. <laughs> they promoted him up out of college football i actually thought joe tess was the perfect guy for it um and he's not there anymore uh i think the job's open right now uh, i like chris fowler don't get me wrong i don't love him and i if people who follow me on twitter and i don't mean to love him as a person i mean i don't think of him as the voice of college football um uh, and that's just you know everybody has their own opinion i know he gets the games he gets and that's great for him and their team um, I just feel like at this, at this, it's 2018. I don't think there's anyone who even comes close to holding the position that Keith Jackson once did, or even really like that Brent had for a good decade run or so. Um, I, I like Brad Nessler. I think he's really good. Um, I don't think Gus is the guy, mm-hmm. uh, but it's a good question. I don't think there's anyone who just comes to my mind. As I said, I, as, as he was working his way at ESPN, I think there was a lot of momentum for Joe Tessitore, and I liked him too. Um, but this is what happened. They they decided, you know, they they moved Sean McDonough back to college, which is where I think he's better. Mm-hmm. Um, but somebody had to take that Monday night role, and it was Joe. It's interesting with Fowler, and it's uh, and again, you know, uh, I know Chris. I'm not buddies with him, um, and I think that he. When he made that move, and, and, and I'm not speaking out of school here because he said this publicly, when he made that move, I think he thought of himself as like, how do I want to grow old in this business? What is the profile mm-hmm. of sort of becoming the voice of something, Bec- like sort of moving to the next level in your career? And, mm-hmm. and you can do that from the play-by-play position of the game of the week. Right of the major, and, and I don't think you can really do that as the host of the studio show, even though the studio show is not in the studio and it's iconic to a certain degree. Right. So I think he viewed it as, I will now become the voice of college football. Now, he never actually said and, that, and I don't think he's arrogant enough to him. say that. I mean, those two, you know, Chris and, Ke- and Kirk Kerbs, Kerb, they've been tight buddies for 20 years now, if not longer. Mm-hmm. And I remember like doing a story on Game Bay back in 1999 and 2000. The, the, the interesting thing to me, and hopefully they will break through this, this threshold, is these are two guys who are better friends off camera than you would imagine by listening to them on camera. Oh, that's an Whereas interesting most point, John. This is exactly the opposite. Mm. And I think that if they can ever get the way they talk to one another just hanging out onto 
their Saturday night broadcast. It would help everybody. But I don't I don't hear it right now. In fact, I was I was thinking about this as we were going in. The the best moment I I think they had this season was during the Virginia Tech Notre Dame game and Fowler was talking about uh, is it Kyle Kyler Willis at Virginia Tech, the quarterback? Ryan Ryan Willis. Ryan Willis, yeah, I'm the, sorry. The, yeah, who hadn't worked out and, and Chris just said Kansas just didn't think they had what he they were looking for in a quarterback. And Herbie ad lib just off the cuff, what are they looking for in a quarterback at Kansas? And, and I laugh, <laughs> but they're usually not that funny. That was a great line, I thought, and and uh, and I just love the, the the candor of it, which I don't always hear from them. This is sort of apropos of of nothing, uh, but it came to mind. I do wonder if when Corso leaves game day if Herb Street will also leave game day at that point, we think it a few years out, he will have Mm -hmm. done this like 20, you know, that's got to be a grueling could be day. next year. It could be soon. Yeah, I mean, let's get, listen, I don't want to make it sound like like Kirk is 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 uh, breaking rocks, but that's got to be a grueling mm-hmm. day, and at a certain point he's going to say, listen, I've had enough of this. I just want to do the game like a normal person. Um, mm-hmm. And I and he and Corso are so close. They really right. have like a father-son relationship. I do right. wonder if at some point when Corso says, I've had enough, if Kirk says, you know what, I don't have to be here anymore to sort of help my guy out. And I don't think anybody would blame him. He's, he's like you said, he's carried the rock for a long time doing double duty. And it's every Saturday, like, you know, this past Saturday is a perfect example. You're in Baton Rouge from 8 a.m. local time to 11 a.m. local time, flying up to Ann Arbor to do a game that starts in four hours, you know, from the, from the time you went off air or three and a half hours. That's hard. Yeah, <laughs> I, mean, I don't care if you've got wheels up; it's still hard. And it's a ton so of prepar- I, it's a ton of preparation to do a game like that, really, really well, and still have mm-hmm. preparation for game day, which is a, a, just a ton of work. Right, and you know, a couple of weeks ago, I my column I wrote about the fact that like the the Florida Georgia game day was just flat, and at the same time, like it's like a football team; they had a big a big weekend in Pullman the week before. They knew they were going to Baton Rouge the week after, and the whole crew just had like a, they had a trap game as a, as a crew. It was just not a very good show. It wasn't terrible, but no, there was no energy to it. And you could totally understand because you know, and I, I've been through it too. Like the grind of covering college football when you're flying every Saturday to games it gets on you. And these guys, like a guy like Herb Street, does eat double the amount of work. Do you think they should? go to more places where the story isn't necessarily it's just the biggest it's just the biggest game of the week do you think that would be I'd like to see see a little more imagination Mm -hmm. um and and it doesn't have to always like some days like last weekend I you know that was the place to be great but they have never been to Mountain Union for example which is uh, divisions aside, yeah. the most powerful football program of this century, as you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, they, they should go to a game at Mountain Union. They've been to James Madison twice, and went or three times. I think it's twice. And everybody knows that's where Lee Fitting graduated from college. So it starts, they're a good school. Don't get me wrong. But that's the kind of stuff where people say, like, what is this really about? Um, so I would love to see more imagination on going the occasional, not every weekend, but like the occasional Division three or Division two. Or I mean, or FCS school, if it's valid, I think Mountain Union is perfectly valid. Um, so yeah, some you know when you see how many times they've been to Ohio State, to Tuscaloosa, 
uh, to, you know, about five different places. Um, I don't think that's, you know, ideal for any of us, for any fans, unless you're fans of those particular schools. All right. We're and gonna... again, we feel ownership to this, right? Like the fact mm-hmm. that we've been talking about this shows you how much we care about game day. Yeah. <laughs> like we all want to sort of direct it. Like it's being like a fan of the Mets. Like they should pitch this guy. It's the same thing. Uh, yeah. I turned uh, predicting where the game day uh, site will be three weeks, four weeks out in advance into a, into a small Twitter shtick for me. Right. Yeah. Season, which is ridiculous. <laughs> I don't know if anybody really cares, but I do get a lot of retweets on it. So they... everybody, yeah, I, I follow you doing that. I think it's great. And, uh, you know, a few weeks ago, about a month ago in Hawaii, I think it started out pretty hot. I, I saw that they'd never been to Honolulu for a college game day. And I was hoping Hawaii would keep a, a hot streak going because I thought that would have been fun. Uh, and I'm sure they wouldn't mind doing that in November anyway. Okay, we are going to take a, a quick break here. And when we come back, John Walters is also a Notre Dame alum and he is a smart Notre Dame fan. Can I use fan? <laughs> I was going to say, can you use smart? yeah go ahead whatever you want so so we will talk to him a little bit about notre dame and the college football playoff and some things along those lines right after this on the ap top 25 college football podcast and we're back with john walters he is uh the media critic i'm gonna use that i'm gonna just use that i'm gonna call you the media critic for the athletic (laughs) uh he writes a column every week for the college football site and he looks through it looks at college football through a television screen and 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 shoots back his thoughts he's also worked for sports illustrated and newsweek and a whole bunch of other places and uh is a really terrific writer and a great follow on twitter at j oh wait you're on j dub j dubs 88 j dubs 88 and mm-hmm. you can follow his blog it's called medium happy which is uh it comes out still every day right you're still updating that every day I write it every day, every weekday. And it's uh, it's also a very cool place to read John's writing. So, John, uh, Notre Dame, uh, mm-hmm. you're about three games away from a definite playoff spot and maybe just two wins away from clinching one because I actually think they might have a little room to work with here if they have a loss. Um, I wanted to get just get your thoughts. I feel, I've done, I feel like I do this every time I talk to you. Your thoughts on what <laughs> Kelly has done with this program and if you feel like you, it is. This is different from 2012. First of all, it's a much. It's a much. Yeah, it is different than 2012. He's got a defense. He doesn't have one big star. I mean, they had a few other good players in that defense, but this is a this is a defense without anybody who has the Manti Teo star power, but with guys like at least six, seven guys who you would say this guy's the MVP of this defense this year, uh, and get a good argument. Like that's the first thing they have. It's not Michigan's scoring defense. Don't get me wrong. But in any game, there's at least a good six or seven guys that you can count on and go, that guy showed up. Uh, a case in point, a couple weeks ago, Notre Dame played Navy and Aloha Gilman, a safety. He was the stud of that game. Other games, Julian O'Quara has been the stud of that game. Jerry Tillery, Julian Love, Drew Tranquil, Tavon Coney. So, it's a, it's, a, it's a defense that's more reminiscent of the 1988 National Championship team in the sense that there's a bunch of studs. Um, the other thing about Kelly being different, I go back to the first game day. We were talking about game day before this year. And the game day in Michigan-Notre Michigan, Dame game in South Bend, if you, there was a segment where they brought out Muffet McGraw, the women's basketball coach. They won the National Championship. And there was a genuine uh, – 
affection between Kelly and McGraw that you would not have seen five years ago. I think Brian Kelly has finally bought into uh, the parameters of coaching at Notre Dame. Mm-hmm. He's, he's finally realized you, you're not going to get everybody you want. Get the kids you can work with. Uh, our friend, our mutual friend, Pete Sampson, had a great tweet this week that Tavon Coney and Dexter Williams will be the first Florida stud recruits that Kelly has gotten who are going to graduate. So he's finally figured out who I can work with. And we all know Mike Bray is, has you know become this coach who doesn't – he's not going to get one and dones, but he's going to get guys who are in their third and fourth year who are mature – and no one's expecting them to win the national championship, but if they can get to the Elite Eight, which they've done, I think, three times in the past five or six years, like that's, that's a good thing. Um, so the, I think Kelly's seen what Mike Bray does, and he's seen what Muffet McGraw does, and he's bought in more to what Notre Dame is uh, than his own glory. Yeah, I, I, I did a story earlier in the year about the relationship between Kelly and and Swarbrick and what it sort of turned into was what you are talking about. Cause that was the theme that kept reoccurring was that in some ways the relationship there, and they're not buddies. They, they have a nice working right. relationship is to a certain degree. It's Swarbrick. It was Swarbrick's main job with Kelly was to get him to understand what you can't do at Notre Dame. Mm-hmm. Like, and these are the parameters you need to work in. And that, that doesn't mean that you, that, that doesn't mean that Notre Dame is crippled because it can't do certain things. But it was sort of like I remember him saying something like uh, the effect of uh, he had quoted like Gene Corrigan, like, hey, I've got a list of 10 things. And I always show the coach that these are the 10 things that are never going to change at Notre Dame. And within <laughs> and, and within a month, the coach is in my office saying, can we change one of those things? And I just pull out my list and say, here are the 10 right. things we will never change at Notre Dame. And that was a way of sort of uh, of getting across what his relationship with Kelly has been. And a lot, again, a lot of it is in the recruiting area and what type of kids you can get there. And do you waste a lot of manpower on the kid that you hope will fit at Notre Dame and you hope will grow into the player and person that you need at Notre Dame? Or do you say, you know what, I know he's a four star, but we're just going to try something else. And it's, it's a it's a case-by-case basis. I mean, look at Jalen Smith was a five-star kid who happened to grow up in Fort Wayne. They got him. He did not disappoint. He was an absolute stud. Um, probably the best defensive player they've had uh, in the Kelly era. On the other hand, Chris Fink is a former walk-on who is the one guy you want to see Ian Book throw the ball to on third and five or longer. Like, that is the guy I know is going to catch the ball. He is, you know, everybody's got their Wes Welker guy. He's their Wes Welker guy. He's, um, but he's a walk-on. And, and so sometimes it's just alchemy. Like there are some seasons when this all works out, when you have a few studs. Uh, Jerry Tillery was a high recruit, um, you know, guys like that. And then you get a few guys, like Ian Book is a three-star quarterback. But I don't know anybody. Like he's, he's probably the best quarterback. I mean, Deshaun Kaiser is the only other guy who's close to what Ian Book is, is Notre Dame's quarterback. And in passing situations, I would rather see Ian Book take the snap than Deshaun Kaiser. Um, so this is, it's, it's, you know, every season, every team, not just Notre Dame, you know this, like anybody's 9-0, they've had some nice chemistry work out for them. Uh, it, it may not matter to Alabama when you're that loaded, but for most schools to be 8-1 and or 9-0, and you've got to have a few good leaders, a few guys who you didn't know were going to have seasons that they're having, 
and and the guys and nobody disappoint. And that's what's gone on for Notre Dame so far this year, which is, you know, they're they're not in Clemson and Alabama's class in my opinion, but they are definitely in everybody else's class. And and you know they've earned what they've earned their number three spot. Okay, so. Which brings me to uh, our little Twitter beef, which <laughs> which, was, which, which is probably right, not the ahead. best way to describe it. But well, I, I I find it interesting because you are the voice of a of a of a concern of many Notre Dame fans. I seem to be getting this a lot from many Notre Dame fans, even though my point was not necessarily to say, and the point I made was like, listen, uh, there's sort of this theme here that Notre Dame blew out Michigan. And I wasn't necessarily saying that as a pushback to Notre Dame. I think it was more of just like people seem to be sort of dumping on Michigan here. Oh, that horrible loss at Notre Dame. And my thing was like, no, 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 no. Notre Dame's really good. And they hung with Notre Dame. So that has sort of spun, I think, Notre Dame fans. And I don't want to speak for you are sort of a little mm-hmm. sensitive about this because I think they could sense, well, is this does this mean we're going to end up getting stuck playing Alabama in the first round? So I'm wondering, I, is that where you're coming from on that? Because I felt like I've been getting a lot of pushback on simply saying that what I seem to be a, re- a reasonably close game was a reasonably close game. It was a, a two-touchdown game or at least a 10-point game most of the game. Most of the game. Uh, but here's, here's, here's what I was what I was, I was thinking about, I'm a Notre Dame alum. If I were to come out and say Michigan beat Notre Dame in the first week and led by more than 10 points most of the time, but you know what? We've had a really good season since then, and I think we're better than Michigan. Everybody on my timeline and every sports writer that you and I both know would say, unbelievable Notre Dame homer. How dare he? And yet, if you reverse this and say the same thing for Michigan – it's somehow reasonable, and that's, that's where I'm coming from. If I were to use that logic, if Notre Dame had lost at Michigan uh, on September 1st, I know what people would be saying about me. So uh, that's where my logic's coming from on this. Michigan is, is, has played tremendously, but at the same time, their revenge tour is a regional tour. They were down 17 nothing at, at Northwestern. Uh, the Michigan State game, I always felt they were in control, but they definitely didn't blow them out. And they lost to Notre Dame. That's their three road games this year. Mm-hmm. And we both know this is not a very strong year for the Big Ten. Is Michigan the best team in the Big Ten? Definitely. Is Michigan perhaps the fourth best team in the country deservedly? Yeah. But like to ignore that they lost is, is and not make that the like, end of the argument between these two schools, at least at the current moment, to me is I, I just don't, I don't buy it. I, I, I am fine with that. I wasn't necessarily the one making that argument, though. That's the thing. Like, I w- I'm not necessarily in the position of saying, hey, like, I, I think it would be kind of silly to push Michigan past Notre Dame. Um, I-, I will say this. Well, let's, let's talk about the playoff situation for a second. Do you think Notre Dame's sure. got a little leeway for a loss here? Because I think they do. I think they might, but I'm talking as an alum here. I hope they don't get it. If they lose one game, listen, I, I – I, I would not at all, as an alum or fan, lobby for that at all. And here's why. Like, Notre Dame is independent, and people are, you know, even just a couple weeks ago, there was that Sports Illustrated story with the what I think is a false logic about them needing to be in a conference. They don't need to be in a conference. But for me, I think part of this decision to be fiercely independent is um, you've got to be a little bit better than everybody else, at least everybody with the same record as you. So – 
forever, and I've been like I'm loving this sport for 30 years now. I've always felt if you're undefeated, no one has a right to keep you out of the playoff. If you have one loss, you don't have a right to tell anybody you belong in the playoff. And, and that's the easiest way for me to describe it. Okay. I think they have a chance to get in here with one loss because I think the weird, a lot of weird stuff is going on around the country. But I like that point. And that's a good jumping off point to this. And maybe it'll be the last thing we talk about here. And that oh, is. Oh, no. Uh, well, maybe. Or maybe, maybe not. <laughs> and, and that is, you don't really like the playoff idea anyway. Now, I think it makes you. It's grown it's, on me. I think it it's shows your age practice, to a certain degree. No, it's grown on me. <laughs> Even though you're only a little bit older than I am. So it has grown on you a little. Because I know you've been sort of anti this whole playoff thing in a lot of ways. But why has it grown on you? It's grown on me because I, I, you know, I actually like it. My, um, I didn't think it was going to solve every problem with people feeling left out. And that part is correct. Um, I just think that like, I have no, I honestly have no problem with it. I think, uh, I don't want to say I was wrong, but maybe I was wrong. So yeah, I, I think the 14 playoff is fine. Um, here's one thing I, I do have a little beef with is this 13th data point, which has become one of these, like it's a stupid, um, it's stupid. It doesn't mean anything. It's stupid. Yeah. It doesn't mean anything, but people, it's, it's like one of these political terms we see that are used as weapons, um, you know, that, that trigger things that are completely useless. I, I thought about this earlier today, and, and if I can do a little plug here, on my blog today on MediumHappy.com, I proposed six conferences that are all 12 school conferences. And here's my idea. The winner of those conferences get in, have an 18 playoff with the proviso that you eliminate conference championship games. Mm. Um, use that weekend in December for the, for the quarterfinals. Um, and I would like to see that because we all know that these cha- conference championship games are kind of quarterfinals anyway. Um, and they create so many headaches because, for example, like what happens if Georgia beats Alabama? It's a headache that, that I don't think, you know, is necessary. Um, or what happens like, you know, Oklahoma or West Virginia may have to beat the other team two weekends in a row. So, I mean, that, is, that was the idea I had. But I don't, I'm not sure if I went someplace that you weren't thinking of on that. But that was No, because, because I think eventually we are going to get to something like that. Now, I don't think it's going to involve massive uh, conference realignment and the rebirth of the Big East, like your, like your thought is. <laughs> Though I, think I, a lot of, I think a lot of people would like that. Um, and it would be a little more inclusive. I, I do say this. There's going to be sort of a come to Jesus moment here with these conferences where they have to decide to a, do we want to expand the playoff? Eventually the answer to that is going to be yes, because there's going to be too much money not to. And then it's going to be, how do we fit our conference championship and the way we sort of run our conferences internally to align with the playoff? Because having these, you're right, especially if you expand the playoff and you start handing automatic bids out, these conference championship games are just, all they are is TV inventory. Um, They're TV inventory, and, you know, I hope to make, the conference wants to make a buck with the tennis, but some conferences, as you know, do better than others with that. Right. So, right, the SEC is going to be hard-pressed to give theirs up because it's a big event. It's an SEC carnival down in, in Atlanta for a few days. Right. But, again, there's the, the next iteration of the playoff is going to involve some serious introspection on the 
um, conference level about how are we do, figuring out our conference champion. And again, because another part of it is, if we're going to have an automatic bid, do I really want, which is what's going to set up this year, do I really want to expose my best team to losing to an eight and four team, and now that eight and four team gets you know rolls on into the playoff and gets its ass kicked, and, right. which is not good for my right. conference either. Right. And, no, and now I've either. shut out my my really good team because they happened to fumble five times that one game. You know? <laughs> I actually I admire the selection committee in the sense that no matter how many times they appear on ESPN or anybody else wants to interview them, and people try to corner them into what they're uh, you know, parameters are, they stick to pretty much what they should be sticking to is we want the four best teams. And, and, and that way fans, you know, college football fans, you know how we are. We're just, we, we're going to find that little like, piece of, you know, meat to hang on to, and we're going like, to not let go. So they're not going to say conference champion. They're not going to, because then, then you, you know, corner them and they're not going to paint themselves in a corner. And, there's nothing wrong with saying we want the four best teams in the championship, in my opinion. Do you like that show? Do I like the selection committee show? Yeah. <laughs> it's, I don't know if anybody could really say I like it, but do you think? I don't know uh, if I like it. I mean, you have we have to sort can, of consume it for our jobs to a certain degree. But what do you think of that show? Uh, I, it's it's you know I don't hate it. I I anything that Reese Davis is hosting, I can I can stomach because I just really really like Reese doing whatever he does. Um, once you get the suits involved, once you get like you know, in terms of either conference commissioner, I always just sit. You know, they they're not on our level as fans. Like we have different priorities maybe than they do, and um, and we're going to be a lot more. I think. Uh, just candid about what we say, and 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 so that, that you know, um, that's that part when I start to hear them talking like politicians, at least the guys they're interviewing is a turnoff for me. Okay, this is the last one. I'll, I'll get you. Do you think? Oh, sure. Do you think you should have the rankings? Because basically, the rankings are just a way for ESPN to give every other thing on ESPN's platform, something to talk about for seven days. Right. <laughs> I mean, it's just, it's just making I'm... some stew for the rest of the right. company to consume. Right. But, but is that a good thing? I mean, you know, so we all consume it and, and the same way. I mean, do you think it's good for college football to sort of have like seven days of sort of talking about who's ranked? Yes, where? Yeah. of course. It's great. And you, okay. you know, I'm talking to the, the, you know, the Kaiser of the Associated Press right, right here. And I love that you guys do your rankings. Right. And, and I think it's fine. It's, it's, it's putting it in the proper perspective. Um, my one argument about this, and you've heard me make it before, is I'm all fine with preseason Associated Press rankings. I am not fine with people after the first or second week adhering to what they thought when it comes to ranking a team. Like, well, we can't move them up 10 spots. They were unranked in the preseason poll. The preseason poll is fun, and it, it shouldn't be taken seriously in the sense of having to adhere to it once the season starts. But I'm all for those polls every week. Everybody, we love them. By the way, I am definitely going to tweet out uh, your blog post today from Medium, Medium Happy when I tweet out the podcast. 
So look for that, listeners, because especially UCF fans will be in their glory because now they're in the ACC. <laughs> USF is in the SEC, though there might be a little argument there about which one should be in which in which place. But uh, BYU especially will be completely ecstatic ending up in the Pac-12. So well, if you were the commissioner of college football, you would make a lot of fans happy. And we all want to be the commissioner of college football, and, and of course none of us ever will be, but the two things I'll put in there is, first of all, that's geographically correct. That was my primary mission. Mm-hmm. And the other thing is, as I wrote, try to imagine what, what I put in there, and then that actually being the state of affairs and someone suggesting to you to change it to the way it actually is right now, what, what, who would go for that? <laughs> Nobody. Right? That is true. College football is at a place that no one would have would ever decide it should be right really like if 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 if, if reasonable people got together at any point no one would ever place it here no one would put <laughs> Rutgers in the big 10 no one right. no it just it makes no sense and you've got the pacific 12 Pac-12 with a con- with a team that's on the eastern side of the continental divide there's a reason they call it that so I'm just trying to make some sense of it all. We all are. Yeah, it's uh, and that's that's why we love the sport. John Walters yeah. writes for the Athletic. You can find him every Sunday or Monday, I believe. Bubble Screen comes out, correct? And and you can read him there, and you can read him at Medium Happy, and you can follow him on Twitter, and just have him, you know, and read him ranting at me every once in a while and others. <laughs> <laughs> John, thanks so much for doing this today. Ralph, you're a good friend. You're a great guy. I appreciate you having me on. And now, three and out. First down. A few quick thoughts about this weekend's big games. Uh, Both number one, Alabama, and number two, Clemson, face opponents that in theory could provide some legitimate resistance this weekend. The Tide goes home to face number 18, Mississippi State, which has allowed only nine touchdowns this season and has two of the best defensive linemen in the country in Montez Sweat and Jeffrey Simmons. Problem is the Bulldogs are just as one-dimensional offensively as LSU, maybe even more so. Maybe an LSU hangover by Alabama keeps Mississippi State in this into the third quarter. Clemson has to go on the road for a night game at number 17, Boston College. The weather forecast up in New England is cold that night, but nothing out of the ordinary. BC is pretty good. Good running back in A.J. Dillon, really good defensive lineman in Zach Allen. I think we'll be able to test out just how close Clemson is to playing at an Alabama level. That's something that's been thrown out there a lot, including by me by how the Tigers handle the Eagles this weekend. Second down, there is an excellent chance three Power 5 Conference Championship games will feature participants with at least four losses. Arizona State, Northwestern, and Pitt are all 5-4 and four overall and in the best position in their respective divisions in the Pac-12, Big Ten, and ACC to win those divisions. There is also a chance Iowa State or Texas could reach the Big 12 championship game with at least three losses. But the Big 12 doesn't have divisions and just matches the top teams in its standings. That's not a bad idea, except for the fact that when you have 10 teams and nine conference games, everyone in the league plays each other. So the championship game is guaranteed to be a rematch. Anyway, 
The mediocre divisions and imbalanced conferences have renewed calls for conferences to get rid of divisions altogether. Doing so would increase the frequency with which teams in opposite divisions play each other. This is especially problematic in the SEC and the ACC where they only play eight conference games, so some of those teams go years and years without crossing paths. All that said, there is no momentum for any conference to do this anytime soon. I do think, as we talked about with John, we will get to a point where the conferences seriously start looking at expanding the playoff. And when they do that, they'll reopen discussion about how they determine their conference champions. Because right now, the way the playoff is set up, it really doesn't matter how you determine your conference champion and whether you play a championship game. So you might as well because they make some money. Third down. My off-the-radar this week is Kansas at Kansas State. The Jayhawks, to no one's surprise, have already said Coach David Beatty will not be back next season. Beatty's plight has been well chronicled. He leaves KU better than he found it, but the task was so monumental that he was pretty much set up to fail as a first-time head coach hired on the cheap. Now, as for K-State, we have reached the point where it is probably time for 79-year-old Bill Snyder to step aside. He is one of the great college football coaches of all time, already a Hall of Famer. One of the most respected sports writers in the region, Vahe Gregorian from the Kansas City Star, wrote this week in a column that was both respectful and strong that it was time for a change with the Wildcats. Kansas State is unlikely to get bowl eligible this season, and at this point, to use Gregorian's words, the program is just treading water. The hang-up is still the same, though. Snyder wants his son to take over, and nobody else wants that. But I'll say this. Kansas State has won nine straight in the rivalry against KU. The Jayhawks are probably better than they have been in at least five or six years and maybe more than that. If Kansas State has that winning streak snapped, it might change the tenor of the discussion about the future of the program, and maybe, just maybe, it'll be the thing that forces Snyder to look at himself and look at his program and decide, maybe it's time for me to move on. That's the show for today. I'd like to thank my producer, Warren Levinson, for making me sound good. You can find us on Podcast One and Apple Podcasts. Please subscribe so you don't miss an episode. Please give us a good review. It helps college football fans find us, and it helps us find more college football fans. I'm Ralph Russo, the college football writer with the Associated Press. Thanks for listening and come back for more next week of the AP Top 25 College Football Podcast.